Hello and welcome to our very occasional podcast about books called How's the Water. I'm joined as ever by Sienna. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing, Gary? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Not too bad. Things are okay. Thank you. Good. Um, Merry Christmas. Belated Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to you as well. Season's greetings. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Um. That's, That's how you say it in the States, I think, isn't it? It's the politically correct way to say it these days, I think. Okay. I'm very, very PC. So (laughs) happy holidays to you. First of all, we'd like to say thank you to all the people who've been listening to the two episodes we've released, actually to the the three episodes we've released because we did our little pre-episode introduction, our series of the Bronte sisters. And it's a bit of a surprise how many different places everybody comes from. So it's amazing to think of all of you out there in Canada. I think that it might just be one person in Canada who's really hardcore and has downloaded all three of them, (laughs) which is lovely to have repeat listeners. Uh, Someone in India, someone in Australia, there's someone in, um, I think it's around Phoenix, Arizona, who's listened to a couple of them too among other places. So thank you guys for, uh, for caring <laughs> enough to re-download. That's, uh, that's really cool. Yeah, it's lovely to know, isn't it, that it's kind of reached people. You don't, I mean, obviously you want it to when you record something, but then it's always uh, not a surprise, but it's, it's always nice to see people are responding to what you've done. And secondly, we do need to apologize for how long it's been since the last episode we've we tried a couple of times to record uh, we've had some technical issues we're in tier three which those of you not in the uk might not know is a fairly strict lockdown that we have here which has made it a bit more difficult to uh, to get this one down so we're hoping to have a bit of better luck tonight with this one yes we are And so we are recording this at Christmas, obviously, and we've picked a book full of seasonal goodwill, which is Wuthering Heights. Yes, a novel, I think we can both agree, full of warmth, cheer, (laughs) good feeling amongst people, um, families coming together, all that kind of stuff. really captures the essence of the holidays, I think. It does indeed, yes. Um, uh, Yeah, I'm I'm glad that we've done this at this time. Everybody's stuck in a house together. That's true. Stuck in a house, getting on. People you might not necessarily like. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, They don't really stick on a fake smile and get on with it, do they? They don't, which I respect a little bit, but we'll get into that later, I suppose. I guess we will. And um, we're going to do something a little bit different with this um, book, aren't we? Um, Yeah, we decided that although this book is relatively short, it is extremely complicated and the plot is very complex. So uh, rather than put a strain on ourselves and you gorgeous listeners we have out there, we are going to divide our episode of Wuthering Heights into two parts. Yeah, so a bit like an American TV series, like, I don't know, Breaking Bad, Mad Men... Game of Thrones, I think, did this. I've never watched Game of Thrones. Uh, We've decided to spin it out for as long as possible and divide this episode into two. So today, uh, we're just going to cover the first half of the novel. But first, 
thinking about you know the book as a whole uh when did you first come across Wuthering Heights when did you first sort of when did it first come to your attention and when did you first read it uh I first read Wuthering Heights in high school mm-hmm. actually a long <laughs> a long time ago now not as uh, long as me that's true. I feel so much better. Yeah, my friend in high school, Becky Schindler, I had more friends than her, but she and I both really liked books. So hi, Becky. She's never going to listen to this and she doesn't, she doesn't care. But okay. she... <laughs> hi, Be- gave, hi, Becky, in that case. <laughs> she gave me a copy of Wuthering Heights that she bought for me as a present on eBay or something. And it was this... Um, uh, copy that was made it was like fake leather I guess it wasn't real leather um, but it had gold pages and I remember reading that I think I was 16 or 17 or or something so that was the first time that I'd ever really I'd read it Um, I'd certainly not seen any I don't know how this is possible but I'd never seen any films and there are several very famous films Mm. Uh, a Wuthering Heights or miniseries, I think. And um, yeah, the book was my first exposure to Heathcliff and Kathy and all of those poor, unfortunate souls. What about you? Yeah, similar, really. I did it for A-level. So I read it when I was about 16 or 17. So A-levels in the UK. Well, actually not in the UK, just in England and maybe Wales. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you study after school so basically in between school and university if you if you choose to continue studying so uh, yeah I was about 16 or 17 and we read it and the way that you study books at that age is you read it across what seems like uh, months and months and months Mm -hmm. so we spent a long time reading it and studying it and then I probably sort of covered it in an exam at some point as well I don't know if I covered it in my actual A-level exam maybe I did Did you have to do book reports or is that just an American thing yeah that kind of thing I think or yeah just write like essays about it Mm -hmm. Um, the thing about doing I really liked it when I read it and I really enjoyed it Um, I wasn't one of those people that kind of didn't like books that they were made to study I kind of tried to judge things on their own merits I think um so mm-hmm. I yeah I remember enjoying it I like the darkness I enjoyed the kind of twistedness of the story and I the thing that I really recall is the kind of structure I really liked how the narrative began at the end almost not quite mm-hmm. at the end I guess but and then garnered your interest a little bit and then kind of went back to the beginning. yeah it throws you into the middle of all the chaos that happens at the near the end of the book doesn't it yeah yeah definitely yeah and I remember seeing, um, this is a bit of a tangent, I'm afraid. So feel free to edit this out. Cool. Um, I remember seeing like Pulp Fiction, probably around the same time, and people mm-hmm. talking about, wow, the, the, the narrative moves around. Wow, he, Quentin Tarantino, he's so, he's so clever how he does that. And I think I even saw interviews with Quentin Tarantino. He said, well, you know, it happens in novels all the time. So it's not that, mm-hmm. it's not that revolutionary, really. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway. Like, this is not a new idea, you uncultured buffoon. <laughs> that may have been what I was thinking. I was quite a snotty teenager. Now I'm, now I'm a... Now you're a snotty 
middle-aged man yes <laughs> I'll, I'll finish that sentence for you but yeah yes pretty much yeah so shall we move on to our little biography of Emily Bronte which I think I'm going to read yeah let's go let's learn uh, about Emily what was she what was she up to what was she like Okay, let's see. Okay, so Emily Bronte uh, was born on July the 30th, 1818 to Maria and Patrick Bronte. Uh, she has the same birthday as, oh, sorry, she had, or she shares a birthday, shall we say, with mm. Kate Bush, who wrote mm-hmm. a famous song about this book. In 1820, as we saw uh, many, many months ago when we recorded our other episodes with her <laughs> two sisters, she moved with uh, the family to Haworth. Uh, when her father was made curate of the parsonage there, uh, which we've both been to, as we've discussed as well. Mm-hmm. Their mother, Maria, died of cancer in 1821. And Emily was one of the sisters who went to the clergy daughter's school in 1824. So the school that sort of made famous in Jane Eyre by uh, Charlotte Bronte. And she was withdrawn by her father with Maria, Elizabeth and Charlotte, when Maria and Elizabeth uh, fell ill with tuberculosis and they both died of tuberculosis. Yeah, so it was a good call, I think, by, uh, yeah, by Patrick yeah. Bronte to do that. He made a good decision there, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, we wouldn't be recording this podcast without that, that decision, I guess. Uh, no. No, so that's obviously the major positive outcome of that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, the three surviving sisters were educated at home with their brother, Branwell, their lovely brother Branwell, and who I know you're very keen on. Um, as a young girl, uh, Emily was extremely shy, but she was very close to her siblings and also very keen on animals. So she used to befriend stray dogs that she encountered walking on the moors, apparently. The siblings all read extremely widely, um, including works by Sir Walter Scott and the poems of Byron and Shelley. As we've already discussed somewhat in previous episodes, um, using a box of soldiers that Branwell had received as a gift, the children began to write fictional stories set in different imaginary worlds, using the soldiers as their protagonists. Much of these stories were set in a world called Angria. When Emily was 13, she and Anne began creating new myths around a world called Gondol. Um, this was possibly a ruse to get away from Charlotte, but mm-hmm. that is just my theory, not <laughs> official Bronte fact. Emily began attending the Rowhead Girls School where Charlotte was a teacher, but withdrew as she was suffering from extreme homesickness. In 1838, Emily became a teacher at Law Hill School in Halifax. However, she returned home in April of the next year. Her always fragile health was unable to cope with the, wait for it, 17-hour working days there. Yeah, 17 hour working days is not okay, I think. Even <laughs> they didn't have ACAFs and they didn't have um, uh, unions, did they? No, they didn't. I don't even think Workers Amazon. Rights. I don't even think Amazon are that bad, are they? Oh, I don't know. If you work for Amazon, <laughs> please tell us. Yeah, <laughs> We'd yeah, love please, to know. How, please, yeah, how please tell us. I've seen your adverts and apparently it's great working for Amazon. So. Yeah. 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 But, uh, if you, if you have a podcast down, please distribute our podcast, Amazon. Please, please. Okay. Three years later, Emily accompanied Charlotte to the Heger Pensionat in Brussels, where they studied French and German with the hope of opening their own school. While Charlotte was happy there, Emily certainly wasn't. Stubborn as ever, she refused to adapt to Belgian fashions, and this made her something of an outcast. 
Uh, Sienna, unless I'm very much mistaken, you spent a little bit of time in Brussels when you were younger. Um, I did. Did you adopt to Brussels fashions when you lived there? Or were you too stubborn like Emily and, and thus became an outcast? No, I conformed pretty quickly. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I adapted because, yeah, I, I didn't want to be left out. So that's, that's what you got to do. So really, I think Emily was probably more of an original type of person than I was. But yeah, so there you go. I started wearing boots there. You started wearing boots. Was that what everybody did in Brussels? Mm-hmm. In- yeah, like, you know, just boots. <laughs> ne- like knee-high boots and, and stuff. That's not a thing where I was from. Okay. People weren't really doing that. So yeah. uh, that was an, a new concept to me, believe it or not. Let's return to the Bronte, shall we? The sisters returned home on hearing of the death of their, death of their aunt, who had helped to raise them after their father was widowed. Uh, Later, the three sisters attempted to open their own school, but these plans were thwarted as they couldn't attract a sufficient number of students to the area. I would say a school without students sounds perfect to me, but obviously it doesn't make Mm -hmm. financial sense, I guess. Uh, No. In the ensuing years, the three sisters began to develop their poetry. Uh, Charlotte discovered the the two notebooks of poems written by Emily, one labelled Gondal, the other was unlabelled. Charlotte pushy as ever, insisted that the two sets of poems be published. Mm. Emily initially refused, but then changed her mind after Anne disclosed that she too had been secretly writing poems. They're just all little secret poem writers in their free time. Yeah, they are. Yeah, it's it's great. I really like the idea of them all (laughs) in their own rooms, like scribbling away. Mm -hmm. Um, Around this time, uh, Emily wrote one of her most famous poems, uh, No Coward Soul Is Mine which I think we may have a little look at in a future episode. I'm not too sure. And also, not to be a bit, not to get down on Emily, but she wrote No Coward Soul Is Mine, and yet she, every time she left home, (laughs) she was like, ah, I'm homesick, oh God, and then came back home, went Uh, back home. So uh, not to drag it through the mud or anything, but she might have had higher opinions about herself than might have been actually true. Okay, Uh that, that could it's a hot take <laughs> if anyone wants to debate me then fair enough but <laughs> that's just in our research of emily bronte uh, yeah doesn't quite I, fit but you know uh, yeah i'm not going to debate you i mean okay. uh, <laughs> but yeah it's a valid point we will that? look at that in a future episode though yeah yeah possibly. i hope so and then maybe we can discuss it as well was mm-hmm. she was she a coward or not mm-hmm. In 1846, the three sisters' poems were published in one volume as poems by Courier, Ellis, and Acton Bell, so uh, male pseudonyms that they all chose for themselves. The sisters, who each contributed around 20 poems, uh, were told that only two copies of each volume had been sold. The following year, Wuthering Heights was published in London. It shot many readers with its depictions of brutality, primal passion, cruelty, and barbarism. However, in spite of, or maybe because of these elements, the book has since gone on to become an English classic. And now we are going to leave the life of Emily to find out why. So thank you, Wikipedia. Thank you, Gary, for reading that. You're welcome. And welcome to hell, because we're going to get dark fast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not a happy book. It's not. We were joking about the Christmas elements before, in case anyone didn't realize. Yeah, this is awful. It's, yeah. um, yeah. Can you, you know how 
the the three no the four Bronte siblings uh, with Branwell I think how they used to write around the table together in the evenings mm-hmm. and compare what they've written and stuff like I just like imagining uh, Charlotte Bronte was like I wrote this from Jane Eyre and there it's all nice and then Anne Bronte's like here's this passage from Tenet of Wildfell Hall and they're like ooh. And it's a bit controversial. And then Emily's like, I have this. And it's just like, awful. They're probably just like, Jesus, Emily, what is this? Yeah, God, yeah. No wonder you're so quiet. This is what's going on in your mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She was, um, she had some ideas. But she did, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get into them now. Yeah, let's do that. So um, we're going to start with part one of the book. The story begins in 1806 when mr lockwood the de facto narrator of the novel arrives from london to take up a tenancy at thrush cross grange in the yorkshire countryside yeah so joseph lockwood is a relatively minor character in the events of the novel however his narrative bookends in wuthering heights as he tells the story before and after nelly dean takes over the role of the main narrator He's a pompous gentleman. I've written slightly there, but slightly isn't true, is it? He is a He's very, very pompous. <laughs> he's yeah. very pompous. I think I was being polite there. He's a very pompous gentleman who has arrived to take a break from city life. It is his strong interest in Heathcliff and the other residents of Wuthering Heights that start the narrative and drive it forwards. Hmm. When visiting his landlord, Heathcliff, at his farmhouse, Wuthering Heights, he meets an interesting collection of people that live at the house. A quiet young woman, Kathy Linton, a moody servant, Joseph, who speaks in a very broad Yorkshire accent, like to the point of all that he says being pretty much unreadable. Mm-hmm. Emily had- actually wrote his dialect into the text. She did. I had to read it out loud when I was reading it. Yeah, yeah, me I too. couldn't really follow it. Yeah. So thanks. Uh, so much, Emily, for that, mm-hmm. yeah. if you're listening. Um, and a young man also named Harriton, who speaks in a similar way and also seems to be a servant. Okay, so Joseph is a very cantankerous servant who has worked at Wuthering Heights for at least three generations. He's a self-righteous Christian who openly despises all the other characters in the book. Um, that's all there is to say about him, really. Mm-hmm. And he pops up here and there to moan about something and then and then goes away then sort of disappears up the stairs or something Hmm. so lockwood is not made to feel welcome by any of the house's inhabitants including his landlord and moreover the relationship between this motley crew of people seems to be very strained and aggravated to say the least they all seem to totally hate each other and it's very awkward for a guest who is forced to spend the night at the house due to a heavy snowstorm In the room he's been put in, he reads part of a diary belonging to Catherine Earnshaw, the room's former occupant, not to be confused with Kathy Linton, who Mm -hmm. we will get to later. Yep. Um, After falling asleep, he dreams of Catherine's ghost begging to be allowed into the room and dreaming loudly, he awakens Heathcliff, who, after he's informed of the dream, passionately calls out of the window for Catherine. Very dramatic. Yes, and Laurence Olivier really sells it. Oh, he does in the film, yes. In the film, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the next day, Lockwood returns to Thrushcross Grange and is told the tale of the family by Nellie Dean, who is the housekeeper, who assumes the role of narrator at this point. And she's much more fun. And interfering. Uh, Nellie becomes the main narrator of the story when Mr. Lockwood returns to Thrushcross Grange and asks her to relate all she knows about the Earnshaws. Nellie has been a servant to the Earnshaws across three generations and has therefore witnessed all of the misfortunes of the family. Yeah. In Nellie's tale, the plot backs up to 30 years earlier. So we're taking it back. 30 Mm -hmm. years. She is the servant at Wuthering Heights to the Earnshaws and their two children, Hindley and Catherine. Mr. Earnshaw returns from a work trip to Liverpool with a child he's found in the streets. As you do. Yeah, it's sure, I guess, who he simply names Heathcliff, which was the name of his and Mrs. Earnshaw's son who died in infancy. Uh, Mrs. Earnshaw dies soon after, and Mr. Earnshaw neglects his own children while favoring and spoiling Heathcliff. Heathcliff and Catherine, both being of a wild nature, become close, but Hindley resents Heathcliff and the attention he receives from his father. Yeah, Hindley is the brother to Catherine and the eldest of the two Earnshaw children. He takes an instant dislike to Heathcliff and bullies him throughout his childhood, which uh, he may come to regret. When he returns from college with a wife after his father has died, he continues to despise Heathcliff. Yeah. Around age 12 or 13, Catherine is attacked by a dog belonging to the Linton family after she and Heathcliff sneak off to spy on the more affluent children living there at Thrushcross Grange. God, I hate the name of that place. (laughs) Yeah. That's hard. Uh, I'm glad you're the one reading that. Forced to stay with the Lintons as she recovers, Catherine grows close to the two children, Edgar and Isabella, and she becomes more refined. Edgar... Linton has, is brought up at Thrushcross Grange. How did I do with that? Was yeah, that okay? I'm but, clapping. I don't know if anyone can hear. Good no. job. Uh, Thrushcross Grange, and it's clear that his family is better off than Catherine's, with his fair hair, pale skin, and blue eyes, as well as his polite and civilized manner. He sharply contrasts with Heathcliff. Over the next few years, he grows closer to Catherine, and though he knows she can be challenging and prone to childish rages, finds himself charmed by her beauty and her spirit. When she is 15, Catherine informs Nellie that Edgar Linton has proposed to her and she intends to marry him to lift her social status. But she also admits that she loves Heathcliff too. But, oh, what a surprise. The first part of this conversation is overheard by Heathcliff and he runs away from the house before he can hear that last really important part about her loving him really. So Catherine, distressed, becomes ill um, again, a normal thing. You get mm-hmm. upset and then you just go ill for months. Well, it's, uh, a vi- it's a Victorian novel, isn't it? I suppose. Everyone had weaker constitutions. We've talked about this in uh, Tenet of Wildfell Hall, I believe. Yeah, we have. We have this yeah. thing. Um, so she is distressed. She becomes ill, but she marries Edgar and moves to Thrushcross Grange. And Nellie, our narrator, moves with her. Okay, and that's the end of part one, isn't it, Mm -hmm. of the book, anyway? Lots of drama, yeah. Yeah, a lot has happened. So what were you thinking at this point of the book? Uh, So I remember Catherine um, is a terrible person. Why do you say that? She's just a bit regressed, I think. She acts like a child, Mm. which um, 
you might see later in the book is a pretty common thing for teenagers to act like. I don't know if that's, Mm -hmm. that's not giving too much away if you already know, Mm. but Catherine just strikes me as um, she's incredibly spoiled and she wants to get her own way to the point of making herself hysterical like a yeah. like a small child would do which is understandable when you're thinking it's like some you know a 2 year old mm-hmm. but when it's someone who's 15 or 16 and she's throwing herself on the ground and making herself convulse into fits and hitting people i think yeah. she hits nelly at one point too mm-hmm. uh and i think edgar sees her in the middle of a big fit and he almost calls off the engagement Okay. And Nellie even encourages him. If I can, um, it's been it's been a while, but yeah. I think somebody encouraged him after he saw that to be like, "Yeah, why don't you just, you know, is this really the the, the girl for you?" And he suddenly is like, oh, "No, this is who I love, and I accept her." And he runs back into the house, and yeah. they stay engaged, and then moves her in. Who's to say how attraction works? I think that's uh, one of the morals of this novel, I think. I suppose, yeah, maybe. But what what about you? At this point, yeah, I was just kind of wondering what was going to happen. I was wondering how, I think I was wondering, thinking about the start and speculating how does this like scrawny sort of servant that's been found on the streets of Liverpool. I mean, I know he's not really a servant, but that's how he's sort of treated uh, by this point of the book, how he ends up becoming the master of these houses when he seems to have no status at all. So maybe that's me. I'm sort of thinking about the social climbing aspect of the book, I think. Sure. And um, I guess, well, before I say my opinion on this, at this point in the novel, for which characters do you feel the most sympathy? Well, Heathcliff, in terms of the, the narrative going 30 years back, because he's, you know, he doesn't have a good time of it, does he, really? Mm. He's, uh, you know, he's obviously, we don't know where he's come from, but he's been found on the streets, he's been taken home, uh, and then things have continued to go badly for him. You know, the person that's brought him home dies, and he's just in this awful environment and he has nowhere to go. Or so, or so we think. Um, but then obviously that sympathy is kind of tempered a little bit by the fact that we know, as I've said, that he's going to rise to become the master of these houses in this, uh, on this moor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who are you sympathetic towards? Definitely Heathcliff. Mm-hmm. He's, um, I thought it would be funny. Can you imagine if when he was living in Liverpool because it, 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 you assume that he's just living in squalor as this dirty little homeless orphan or something on the streets of Liverpool. But what if he's just some kid that was a bit dirty? Yeah. And uh, Mr. Mr. Earnshaw showed up and is like so upset about not having a son that he, or, you know, he wants a replacement son. So he just sees this dirty kid and like kidnaps him. What if that is the story we don't know? So you mean like there's still, the story par- we don't know. <laughs> there's still some parents at home sort of <laughs> waiting for him to come back, wondering what's happened to him? Maybe, maybe that's where he goes later. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't know how much uh, investigatory work Mister Earnshaw has done, do you? I'd never thought of that. But I mean, he, so he's kind of just snatched up on the streets. Mm. I'll say that because I'm sure he didn't really ask to go with Mister Earnshaw, taken to this place that he did, where he doesn't know anybody, and there's somebody very openly hostile towards him there in yeah. um, Hindley. Yeah. And then, as you said, your your father figure passes away, and then you're just um, 
you are sentenced to this life of servitude mm-hmm. and treated horrible. He's treated like an animal, essentially. Yeah, um, by Hin- yeah, by Hindley, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And then you have Catherine, who is sort of your friend sometimes, but then isn't when her popular friends are around. So it's, yeah. I'm sure he was very confused. Poor thing. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but confusion fades, though. It's safe to say, in some ways, maybe not towards Catherine, but yeah towards the others i think it it kind of goes away over time that's true um do you feel ready to crack on with part two yeah let's keep going all right let's go okay so three years later so time passes uh three years later heathcliff returns to the moors he is now mysteriously a wealthy gentleman he stays at wuthering heights with hinley who is now declining into alcoholism and debt hinley Mm -hmm gambles with Heathcliff and there's kind of these hints about what goes on under the roof uh, between both of them Um, but Nellie's not there so it's only kind of hinted at so she doesn't have the the information to tell us just kind of hearsay however uh, we do know that Hindley gambles with Heathcliff and eventually mortgages uh, Wuthering Heights to him and his son Harriton, the simple servant-like young man from the start of the book, looks to Heathcliff for protection from his own father's drunken rages. Mm-hmm. So it should be noted that Heathcliff brings Harriton up to be vulgar and uneducated as part of his revenge on Hindley to treat his son and heir as cruelly as Hindley treated him when he was a boy. Uh, and that's why Harriton speaks with an accent similar to Joseph's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's his revenge, or the the start of his revenge, really. So um, Heathcliff and Cathy are still very much in love, and she is delighted with his return, which understandably annoys her husband, Edgar, (laughs) as as it would. Uh, And it's here that things start to become just a little bit complicated. Edgar, resentful of Heathcliff's effect on both his wife and sister, Isabella, forbids him from visiting yeah, who can blame him? Really? Uh, no, not me. Uh, but again, unsurprisingly, being kept apart from Heathcliff does not have the desired effect on Catherine. Catherine locks herself in her room, refusing to eat, becoming ill and delusional. Yes, she willed herself into insanity, essentially. Yeah. yeah. Over not being able to see him. No, he's not. Which, he, yeah. Normal, I guess. It's fine. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's never happened to me. Meanwhile, Isabella has fallen in love with Heathcliff and he senses an opportunity for revenge and elopes with her. Their relationship quickly flounders when they return to Wuthering Heights and Isabella realises Heathcliff's abusive nature. Um, before Isabella elopes with Heathcliff, basically everyone, including Catherine herself, tells her how nasty he really is. Everybody. It's just like do not get involved with him. He is awful. And she's too blinded by her feelings. And like a rebellious teenager, she's a sucker for the bad boys. And Heathcliff is a master manipulator. So as soon as they're married, he begins to treat her abusively. He keeps her confined to Wuthering Heights and she quickly realizes her mistake. Um, Where have we read this before? Well, for me, that aspect is very reminiscent of what we read in Tenants of Wildfell Hall. What Mm -hmm. do you think? Yes, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heathcliff finds out that Catherine is dying and begins to visit her in secret. She dies after giving birth to her and Edgar's daughter, also named Catherine. 
Um, so she is pregnant this whole time as well, which we kind of find out quite late in the day. To lessen the confusion, we are going to call the daughter Kathy and the mother Catherine. Heathcliff, bereft at Catherine's death, calls on her ghost to haunt him for the rest of his life. Now also pregnant, Isabella flees from Heathcliff to London, where she gives birth to their son, Linton. Yeah, and you can't imagine that uh, Linton was conceived and very happy under very happy circumstances, can you? No, probably not in um, in the most romantic way. No. So, and yeah. I think, yeah, it, it gives you some very sinister, there are some very sinister implications about Heathcliff if you really try and read into it, mm-hmm. which goes unsaid in the book, but it's, you read between the lines and it's a little bit like, ooh, gets dark. Yeah, it's bit, pretty nasty, isn't it? I mm-hmm. think, yeah, that's true. Hindley, like his sister, dies, uh, this is six months later, which makes Heathcliff the master of Wuthering Heights instead of Hareton. Hareton is reduced to servant status and has been effectively conned out of his own inheritance. And that's where we'll pick back up for episode two of Wuthering Heights. Okay, shall we do a couple of questions before we wrap this up? Mm-hmm. Yep. So, who... Or what do you think Heathcliff is? And where did he come from? That's a very good question, isn't it? Now, in real life, I don't really believe in ghosts or demons or or any of that kind of thing. Supernatural. No, I'm not a, I'm not a great believer in that. I think it's possible, you know. I'm not completely sort of closed-minded about it. But I'm not the greatest believer in it however in a book anything's possible and there's lots of kind of hints within the text that he's some kind of animal or demon or or this so i think you know that's that's kind of possible that he is supposed to be something slightly sort of subhuman or something something that's maybe sold his soul or i don't know yeah and i don't i don't know where he came from liverpool i guess no that you just think of the type of people you get in liverpool that's Does i don't anyone... know anything about liverpool really so i'm just kind of <laughs> Does throwing anyone this against the that wall downloads this podcast come from liverpool um not that i have seen okay so we can say what we want then yes I, I i i think it's a fine city but yeah so that's where he's found but i don't know i know i have no idea where he comes does that mean from heathcliff from. is supposed to have a, a liverpool accent no when because... he's a child because he can't speak, can he? Does can he speak when they take him to the house? I don't. I don't remember. Um, if he, he, I don't remember look, how old he was. Actually, wasn't he about seven or eight? Oh, so he's a little bit. Yeah, so should have been talking. Should have been talking a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I hadn't thought about his accent. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, when he comes back as a as a gentleman in this part, he's a bit more refined, isn't he? And I mm-hmm. sort of imagine him having a sort of slightly. I don't know. How do we say it? Receive pronunciation. That's how I imagine him talking, sort of. I wonder how he did that. Did he, like, go take some elocution lessons wherever he lived? Well, he's become a gentleman, hasn't he? So I would imagine that he's undergone all the processes that that takes. Mm-hmm. Um, are you suggesting that he's like Eliza Doolittle in some way? Perhaps. Yeah, I wonder uh, who, who aided him, if he had any help in, yeah. in becoming a gentleman. Is it? Hurricanes in Hampshire hardly ever happen. Is that what it is? What? What is that? That's what in what's it called? What's the film called? Of my is it My Fair Lady? My Fair Lady. That's the main in the rain in Spain. 
falls mainly on the plane. Isn't that my fair lady? Maybe both of them. She does Maybe it in, in she does, she, Audrey Hepburn. She has that awful accent at the beginning. It's not very convincing. And oh. in it's something like, isn't it in in Herefordshire or Hertfordshire? In Hertfordshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen, <laughs> isn't it? I haven't seen that movie in forever, but I trust you on that. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious thinking of Heathcliff. Having to, With... like, they're really hammering out the Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of that. Can't yeah. be a gentleman talking like that. <laughs> or wherever I mean. Wuthering Heights is supposed to be, they don't really clarify. But you assume it's in Yorkshire, don't you? Uh, yeah. Well, judging by the way that Joseph speaks, I think it's Yorkshire. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Uh, and, well, we, that's kind of answered some of this question, but where do you think he's been for three years? Heathcliff, I mean. Yeah. You. I mean, he could have been finding his real parents in Liverpool. And he doesn't he speculate about my mother was an empress of China and my father was a was a king of some other place and he's yeah. sort of just throwing stuff out there to so he doesn't actually tell the truth about how he's become so wealthy and where he's been mm. but you know maybe he was kidnapped at the beginning and his family is actually pretty all right and he went back there and just inherited some family wealth yeah that's true yeah it's possibly true yeah that's part of his game isn't it with Catherine that they kind of imagine where he's come from and, um... yeah so when he's a child they're all talking about oh this your family could be here or there and when he grows up he continues with that little charade of uh like mystery about him but he does come back being really 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 good at gambling mm-hmm. that's which... true yeah yeah, he, like really good. So possibly he was out just making his fortune, conning people out of money and gambling. And somebody does ask him in the book, how did you get all your money? Somebody asks him that. I can't remember who. Maybe it was Edgar mm. or Hindley. And he just basically says, I don't mind taking advantage of people who are too stupid to hang on to their money. Yes, yeah, so that's true. Yeah. It's it's yeah. a little bit like implied that he's either stolen money from people in some way or he's gambled and, and won money yeah. kind of that way. Which I think gambling would be a bit more fair, but uh still I mean it's I guess it's a fast way if you want to make money and you're okay at it. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Have you have you ever had much success yourself gambling? No. No. I've been to Vegas. But yeah, I didn't really gamble. I didn't really do. Did you gamble? Uh, I wasn't 21, so I wasn't old enough. Ah. But you didn't yeah. miss much. It's... I think I put some money in some slot machines, and then we found out that I shouldn't have been doing that. Because I was... <laughs> Were you tall for your age? People wouldn't have cared. I was eight. I don't know. How old was I? I was about 19. So here um, in the UK, I would have been old enough. So it wouldn't have occurred to me that I mm-hmm. wasn't. No, my main memory of Vegas is a married couple, uh, a recently married couple, sorry, newlyweds, uh, queuing up in their wedding gear at some kind of buffet in a hotel, which I thought was, uh, I don't know, uh, when I was 19, I thought was hilarious. Nice and classy. Yeah, yeah, they look classy, but uh, (laughs) yeah, it's not. I wonder if they're still together. When Ryan and I got married, because we got mm-hmm. married in the United States on a road trip, and we mm-hmm. knew we were going to go through Vegas at some point, and we really toyed with the idea of we should have a Vegas wedding. That'd be hilarious. And yeah. uh, we, we didn't do that. 
there's a little, there's a little famous, famous little chapel you can go to, isn't there? I think. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, there's loads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So what could have been? Yeah, you could have had a Vegas wedding. I could have. Home. So. As we said, we are going to leave Wuthering Heights there. We're going to let it settle a bit before we return to it next time. Oh, before we go, do you want to talk about the film? Because it finishes at the end of the first half of the, the book. Yeah. So we mean, don't we, the, the famous 1939 film starring uh, Laurence Olivier, uh-huh. uh, which basically just eliminates the second half of the novel and all the second generation characters uh, that we haven't talked about yet, but Linton and Kathy and Heriton, who we have talked about, he's not in the book either. And it just focuses on... Um, he's not in the film, in the film. Yeah. Sorry. What did I say? In the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he's definitely in the book. Um, but yeah, he's not <laughs> he's not in the film. Um, and it just focuses on the love story between Catherine and Heathcliff. So it kind of reduces everything down, down to that, doesn't it? And I think in this, Heathcliff is depicted much more as a kind of thwarted, romantic, Byronic hero who is only understood by Catherine. Um, uh, yes. And like I said way early in this recording, Laurence Olivier really sells it from mm-hmm. like... The very beginning. doesn't he kick a dog in the, when it was back when you could do that in movies nobody cared nobody about, cared about dogs no they about made all the, the horses and the animals yeah i remember him sort of crying doesn't he scream out of the window at the end when she dies or am i or am i thinking of the famous uh the famous bit from the room with her ghost i don't know but it just no, it but he does both yeah it ends with her sort of in his arms doesn't it Wow. She just, she is wonderful. Who plays Catherine? I can't What's her remember because it was a long while ago. Is it, doesn't it start with an M? Meryl Street. It was not Meryl. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. really good. Yeah. Uh, no, I can't. I'm going to, I'm going to Google it. Yeah, I do that. David Niven plays Edgar, doesn't he? In a quite restrained kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah. Like you say, Laurence Olivier really kind of hams it up. Yeah, and he's a bit more, I don't know, a bit more wet, the character, I think, than he is in the book. In the book, he's kind of just hard, isn't he? But yeah, in the film, he's, he's more sort of vulnerable. and um, He's yeah. very emotional. Yeah. yeah which well, Heathcliff he's... is not, particularly. Not, not outwardly, anyway, no. Meryl, Merle Oberon? Okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, she's yeah, she's pretty good in it. I think I think everybody's okay. I think Lawrence Olivier she's, is good in terms of what she he's really doing. makes Kathy look like an insane person. Uh, she's yeah. beautiful, but she, you know, when they say like, oh, the, the prettier someone is, the more fucking nuts they are. Yeah, she really sells that part of it. I think yeah, she's yeah. really great at um, those weird bouts of. Uh, delusion and insanity that Catherine is supposed to kind of fall into. She really, she gets the crazy eyes and her yeah. eyes right at the end of that movie. It's so good when uh, Heathcliff is holding her at the window so she can look out the window right before she dies and her eyes like get really glossed over. Mm. Yeah. Uh, as if she sees something really beautiful and mm. this is, this ain't CGI because it's 1939. So yeah. that's just acting. And, and then yeah. she just dies in his arms and he freaks out. Yeah. It's just very, it's very good. They really, they did a good job with that. Yeah. But yeah. that is where it ends. It so is. You know. Yeah. 
yeah i think partly that might be i don't know actually i don't know this but i think in many ways the book is kind of seen as like this love story between the two isn't it but i i don't think it is that i think that's an aspect in it but i think there's a lot more going on as well yeah 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 definitely i remember i remember being surprised after it carried on Mm. to the the rest of the the hell that they go through which we'll talk about in part two yeah uh but when okay catherine i'm just like oh all right catherine's dead halfway Mm. through less than halfway through the book she's gone yep doesn't he climb into her grave and stuff yes he yeah he tell he i mean he fortunately during the book he does confess a lot to nelly dean who just happens to be our narrator so he tells uh-huh. her doesn't he that he's climbed into a grave and like laid, laid down next to her and like hugged her and like tried yeah. to sleep yeah and um so i don't remember uh well i remember being a little shocked that it carried on in such a dark way mm-hmm and and then watching the film, how it ends, you you kind of are like, why, why did they leave so much out? But I suppose it makes sense if you're just go. And so much happens mm-hmm. in the very first half of the book. It is really complicated. That is why we've. I think we've done us all a favor by yeah. putting this in two parts because it's exhausting having yeah. to think about all of the stuff that goes on between everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I think it was a very good idea. And it was your idea, so I think you deserve credit for that. Thank you. Um, personally, though, I prefer the second half of the book, so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to uh, to really getting into that with you soon. Yeah, it's awful, but it's in a good way. That yeah. makes sense. Brilliantly so, awful, I think we can yeah, agree. Yeah, brilliantly awful, and I look forward to getting into it too. Sure. Okay, so shall we leave that there? And um, yeah, we look forward to speaking to you all soon about Wuthering Heights Part 2. Yes, thank you very much for listening and see you next time. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.